Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand your consciousness, stimulate your thought, enhance your mental and physical health, and encourage community. Thank you for joining us today, friends. We have an interesting program coming up, and the topic is sex. Yes, that topic that um, we are carefully allowed to talk about on the radio, with extreme care, of course. And our guest today is going to be award-winning writer, Christina Wright. She's going to be talking about two of her books, Lustfully Ever After, A Fairy Tale Erotic Romance, and Best Erotic Romance. She is uh, an award-winning author, as I said, about uh, topics sexual, and you're going to want to stay tuned for this spicy program. But until then, we're going to do some news and notes, psychology and medicine. The alcohol-cancer connection. Does alcohol increase the risk of breast cancer? Yes, even light to moderate drinking, according to a new analysis from the well-known Nurses Health Study, which followed 106,000 women for more than 25 years. It found that women who routinely consumed three to six six drinks per week were 15% more likely to develop breast cancer than non-drinkers, regardless of the type of alcoholic beverage they drank. For women averaging 6 to 19 drinks per week, the risk increased to 20%. And among those considering, uh, consuming more than, uh, considering more than uh, 19 drinks per week and actually consuming more than 19 drinks per week, the risk jumped to 50%. So this sounds extraordinary, doesn't it? It sounds like, gosh, if you drink, the chances of increasing your risk of, uh, of breast cancer jump a great deal. However, you got to dig in a little deeper in order to understand because at age 50, for example, the average woman has a 2.4% chance, that's 1 in 42, of developing breast cancer in the next 10 years. So if you had those drinks, remember the three to six drinks per week, and you had an increase of 15%, it would mean instead of having a 1 in 42 chance of getting breast cancer in 10 years, you'd have a 1 in 37 chance of getting it. So, in other words, amongst a thousand women age 50, light drinking may cause an extra three to four cases of breast cancer in a, in a, in a decade. So, you know, it's mixed re- reviews here. I mean, what it's saying is yes, drinking does keep it does increase your chance of breast cancer but the increase is modest and again it depends on how much you drink um well what do you say about that word to the alcohol you know it, it, it it's known to have some benefits of course you know in relaxation but it also has some harm uh you might want to read uh should you drink and how much in the uh, november issue uh, the 2011 November issue, actually it was 2010, I beg your pardon, of the University of California Wellness Letter. The University of California Wellness Letter has some decent uh, 
expert advice uh, from their School of Public Health, and it's something you might want to check out from time to time. I think the bottom line of all of this is that, uh, you know, alcohol is just something to be uh, pretty careful about. It doesn't mean you have to become a teetotaler, uh, but you want to keep your awareness up. And, of course, always watch out for what I call the creep, the creep. You know, nobody starts out. I've been treating alcoholics and drug addicts now for 50 years. I've never met one who got up in the morning, never drank before and said, well, I think I'll just start out with a fifth of Grey Goose today doesn't happen that way. It starts out with, well, maybe I'll have a martini on a Saturday night, and then maybe, uh, well, why Friday night after a long week's work, and then how about a little Grey Goose or Absolute uh, on Wednesday night, and um, well, then you're up to three nights a week, and then five years later, you're up to seven nights a week, and then eight years later and now you're 28 and you're up to seven nights a week and then by the time you're 35 maybe you're having a second martini or a second drink and so by the time you're 42 you might be having two to three to drink it's the creep same thing happens with marijuana i've seen the same thing happen with cocaine nobody just goes out and wakes up one day and says, i've never had cocaine before in my life i think i'll just start out with an eight ball that's a uh, vernacular for an eighth of an ounce doesn't happen that way. It's, uh, let me, oh, a little blow, let me try a little bit of that. And then the creep over a period of five to ten years, and um, you're blowing your brains out. Happens with many things in life to all of us, uh, particularly in these areas that I call the controllable impulse disorders. Remember those old friends, these little things that creep? Gambling, spending, drinking, drugging, overeating controllable impulse disorders. We all have them, part of the human condition. Try a little something now. Ten years later, we're doing a lot of something. And talking about doing a lot of something, there's a coconut water craze going on. Yeah, friends I notice all of a sudden are showing up at my house, and, they're, and they've got all these bottles of all kinds of uh, coconut water. And, uh, oh, yeah, the coconut water is going to cure everything from... Uh, I shouldn't say uh, yes, no, I won't even say that, but it's uh, curing a lot of things. And uh, the bottom line on coconut water, mm, drink coconut water if you find it refreshing. There's nothing but hype about the, it having healing effects. Those of you who think I'm off the wall by saying that, please just go look at the ingredients, Google them, and you will find out. Yes, there are some electrolytes in there, and yes, drinking water is good for you, but you sure don't need to be spending your money on the coconut water craze It's uh, that's sweeping the country. Uh, in fact, I read one article that says, can coconut oil treat Alzheimer's disease? Well, you know, the, uh, the flavor of the month. Some weeks ago, I, uh, I talked about um, sleeping pill precautions. And um, more and more is coming down the pike. Uh, that's one of those cliches, coming down the pike. What do I mean by that? The journals and the newspapers are providing more and more articles on precautions regarding sleeping pills. So we're, we're reading in the literature. We're not looking at things coming down any pike. Uh, <laughs> um, Sleeping pill precautions, and an estimated 6 to 10% of American adults take sedative hypnotics. That is what a sleeping pill is. And there are 
concerns about the potential for overuse, the potential for dependence, and now there are questions about more serious health concerns. While these pills can be, um, they can be helpful, uh, that's a word I suppose we could use, a recent study of more than 10,000 patients who took the sleeping medication over five years compared the death and cancer rates of pill users with the rates of more than 23,000 people of similar health who were not taking any sleeping pills. The sleeping pill group had an average death rate of 6.1% compared with the non-pill group whose death rate was 1.2%. And that's after you adjust for lifestyle and other factors. In other words, you try to keep the groups as, as equal as possible and in order to just focus in on what is the effect uh, of the sleeping pills. The risk of death was heightened for people who took as few as 1 to 18 pills during any entire year. They had a threefold increased risk of death. And, those, and as you went up in the number of pills, the, um, the chances of death increased. Bottom line, sleeping pills can be helpful as a step in treating persistent insomnia, but they're not to be recommended as a long-term solution. Side effects can be serious, very serious. We're talking about confusion, memory impairment, daytime drowsiness, impaired motor skills, including driving vehicles, and a loss of coordination um, and balance. These sleeping medications, I hope I'm not belaboring the case here, have been known to cause people to get up at night in a half-waking state, engage in activities like eating, making phone calls, and even driving without recalling doing so in the morning. A word to the wise. Raise your awareness about sleeping medication. Lower back pain. Consider yoga or stretching to improve function. A lot of information coming at us from all over the world about the benefits of yoga, also known as stretching. There's an article uh, that I was just reading recently uh, at the, from the University of Kansas where they're using uh, yoga to treat atrial fibrillation. What is atrial fibrillation? AFib, it's an abnormal rhythm that originates in your atria, the upper chambers of your heart. They're using yoga for that and have a showing some uh, positive effects. Also, lower back pain. Uh, studies at the, uh, in, uh, recently published in the Annals of Internal Medicine indicate that yoga, yoga actually did better than other forms of treatment for lower back pain including uh, muscle relaxant and including um, uh, manipulation. Yes, yoga was more effective than both. Easy, non-invasive, well, I shouldn't say easy. It's easy for some, but it's a non-invasive treatment that is certainly worth co uh, considering. You don't have to go to a class. You can get books such as uh, Richard Hittleman's Seven-Day Yoga Book, Richard Sittleman also has a 30-day yoga book. You can do it at home for a very little investment. I think it's important for us to, to keep in mind, I try to remind myself, that body pain rarely 
is experienced in the bones. We don't feel pain in our blood. You don't feel pain. We don't feel pain in our nerves themselves. Most of where we feel pain when we're feeling stress and, 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 and aggravation, irritation, pain, most of where we're feeling it is in the muscles, the musculature. And so, and the muscles, what are they? They're, they're rubber bands that, that, that connect the, the different parts of the skeletal system so that when nerves activate these rubber bands, the rubber bands pull on a piece of skeletal system and that's how we move around. Every bone in our body has some muscle through a tendon connected to it and that is literally how we move. So when we keep those rubber bands nice and stretched out, we've got flexibility and we make a sudden movement and there's, a, there's flexibility in the rubber band. If we allow those rubber bands to get tight when we make a certain movement, you're stretching out a tight rubber band. Well, you know, take a rubber band and, and stretch on it and take a flexible one, see what happens, and take one that's been sitting in your drawer for several months or a year that's stiff and see what happens when you pull it. Actually, it pulls apart. It, often, it frays or breaks. That's the whole story behind yoga and stretching as far as I'm concerned. Namely, keep them loose, keep them flexible. You'll be feeling loose and flexible. Let them get tight. Don't hydrate enough. Let them get dried out. You go to move. I go to move. Well, I'm going to be feeling pain. That's, uh, that's the yoga story. And uh, uh, there's a, another one I, I maybe I'll just take a second on here, which is that a recent published study found that home exercises in stretching for back pain and for neck pain, I beg your pardon, for neck pain, by the way, between 10 and 20% of the people in the United States will experience neck pain in any given year. That's a fifth of the population. And until recently, there wasn't much uh, evidence to show any difference between the three main uh, treatments for neck pain, medication, spinal manipulation, or exercise. And now recent studies are showing that stretching and exercise are more effective than, um, than either medication or chiropractic manipulation. And if you want the reference on that, we're talking January 3rd, 2012 in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Again, January 3rd, 2012, Annals of Internal Medicine, 272 adults who had neck pain were um, evaluated using the three treatments, medication, spinal manipulation, or home exercise you know, in, and stretching. And the people who did the home exercise had the most effective results. You can check, check me out on that one by going to that Annals of Internal Medicine. Well, I think that's enough for, uh, for news and notes for now. If you all have a news or a note that you want to share with the rest of us, send me an email sometime at uh, drrichardlmiller at gmail.com. That's dr. Richard L. Miller at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. You come up with something that others can enjoy and appreciate and get some benefit from. I'll read it on air. Do the same with your other questions. Just email me, drrichardlmiller at gmail.com. Of course, you can always call in during the program. Uh, after, soon into the interview, we'll be uh, taking your calls. For those of you who want to write it down now, the number to call is 707 Nine three seven five one zero three. And now to our interview with Christina Wright, the author of 
best erotic romance, Lustfully Ever After. Christina Wright is uh, described as a budding force to be reckoned with. She's a full-time writer and editor of the best-selling fairy tale, Lust, Erotic Fantasies for Women, as well as other uh, anthologies, including Dream Lover, Paranormal Tales of Erotic Romance, Stream Lust, Steampunk Erotic Romance, Lustfully Ever After, Fairy Tale Erotic Romance, and on and on. I mean, Christina has written uh, many books about um, about uh, sexual behavior and um, this one uh, the best erotic romance which we have I have before me is a collection of erotic romance uh, stories that uh, feature the best of the genre so we're going to be talking about sex uh, welcome to mind body health and politics Christina Wright are you there yes I am thank you you're very welcome we're talking about Erotic romance, lustfully ever after. We're going to have to be very careful here today, aren't we, folks? Why is that? Why do we have to be careful? Because we live in a country where we can talk about almost anything on the air except certain categories and certain words. Sex is one of those categories. Sex repressed so forcefully in the United States that literally, if we use the wrong words, or the words, not the wrong words, but words that are, that are prohibited, the station could be just taken right off the air. How is that, folks? How do you feel about living in a country where, it, when we talk now, if we use mis- words that are prohibited, we could lose the entire station. Words. We're not talking about behavior. We're not talking about ingesting anything. We're not talking about touching another human being. We're not talking about flying a plane or driving a car. We're not talking about revolting against the United States government or any other government. But the possibility of using words that are prohibited could literally take this station right off the air. What an interesting thing. And how do you all, how do you feel about that? I know how I feel about that. I feel repulsed by it. It makes me shake my head, scratch my head, and wonder, will Christina Wright, my guest today, possibly say a word that's prohibited and all of a sudden we're going to be in great trouble? Christina, watch out. <laughs> I, I didn't get the list of prohibited words, so I will, I will try to be careful. Well, I'm not allowed to say them, so I can't tell you, so you're just going to have to guess. Let's just say... I, I, will, I will do my best. <laughs> do your best to stay, to be as formal and civil as possible. Uh, I certainly will, Dr. Miller. <laughs> you can call me Richard, <laughs> and thank you. Christina, tell me something about you. Who are you? How did you get into writing books about the topic of all topics? Where did this come uh, from in your life? <laughs> the, the short answer is I've always been writing about sex, um, Quite honestly, I, I have been interested in the idea of sex and sexual fantasy since I was um, in high school, which I don't know if I can actually say since I wasn't even eighteen. But I actually did a. Uh, you mean you don't? Know, you don't? You don't? Excuse me. I've, didn't, I've got to interrupt you. Women's sexual fantasies. Can you hear me? I've got to interrupt. Did you say you don't know if you're allowed to say that you were interested in sex before you were eighteen? Yes. Oh my gosh. Uh, well, you've admitted it now. 
for the whole world to hear. Yes, the I whole world. All right, um, everybody. I want everybody listening. This world famous <laughs> author, who's written, how many books have you written, Christina? Oh, uh, I have edited. Or edited. I'm on my ninth anthology, and I, I've written a few by myself. I actually have a book coming out in November that's all my own work. Okay, so, uh, we want the whole world to know right now that Christina Wright, who's edited or written into her tenth book was actually interested in sex before she was 18 years of age. If the CIA or uh, is listening, you now have a record. Okay. It's a scandal, right? That's, it's a scandal. Uh, either that or it just makes you like a regular person like everybody else, heaven forbid. All right, so tell us. So you're interested in, in sex in your, in, in your teens, and what happens next? How do you get into this whole system? Uh, well, I, you know, I went the traditional route, and um, I started writing short fiction years ago, and I wrote romance fiction. I sold my first full-length romance novel to uh, Harlequin Silhouette, which is, you know, the, the biggest publisher of romance fiction in the country and probably the world. And I was actually asked to cut several sex scenes from it because despite their reputation, um, the lines back in the day were pretty rigid, and you couldn't write certain things. You couldn't write about certain sex acts and that sort of thing, so I was... What, what, what does that mean? How, well, how do you find that out, that you can't write about certain... Se- in other words, you can write about certain sex acts, but you can't write about other sex acts? Well, times have changed, and now you can pretty much write anything you want for the right publisher, but at the time, there was really no such thing as erotic romance. It was romance and uh, a lot of euphemisms and that sort of thing. And this is, this is going back about 12 years, uh, and we really hadn't... Um, kind of broken that boundary between erotica and romance and basically I submitted it to my editor and she said this is a little too graphic these words readers are not going to like these words let's cut this this is a little too much sex and so I did all that and the book was published but I always felt like I never I never really understood why you know we're all adults hopefully reading the books that we read so I couldn't really understand it and then I started writing erotic fiction short fiction and found a market for it um, thanks to the internet and all of a sudden, it was like another door was open, and I discovered that I could, in fact, write pretty much anything I wanted for the erotica market within, you know, um, still being able to tell the stories I want and talk about relationships and romance and everything else, and still be able to include all these sex, which seems to be a part of everybody's life, but nobody wants to talk about it. Everybody's life, but nobody wants to talk about it, and your publisher says to you at one point, nobody wants to see these words. Right. I wonder what nobody she's talking about. Who are these fo- people? Well, I, I, under, I guess we do know that there are people who don't want to see those words. Of course, those are the people who don't read those books. I heard a rumor. I don't know if it's true or not. Is it true that your husband is a naval officer? It is true. How does the Navy feel about a man having a wife who writes these words? Uh any? Honestly, I haven't gotten a memo about how they feel. Uh, he is not, he doesn't keep it a secret. It's very open. I write under my real name. People that work with him know what I do. And generally, it seems that they think it's a pretty uh, cool thing. And I've actually had a couple of people approach me and ask how they get into it. So, in general, it seems to be a positive thing now. The official Navy brass, I, I don't know, and I'm not going to ask them how they feel. With how they feel about the fact that one of their naval officers has a wife who writes those kind of stories with those kind of words. Sounds ominous. I, I, think, I think after several deployments, any military couple has written stories with those kinds of words. They probably just haven't gotten them published. 
So what what is this what, for you? Getting a little serious here, Christina. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What 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 is this all about? What what is it about that uh, that there's a combination of, of uh, from your perspective? We all have our opinions on what it's about, but I want to hear from you. What's it all mm-hmm. about? All the, these prohibitions and and this suppression and repression, which both you know prohibits the use. Until now, you're able to write more, but at the same time, we all know that there's a huge number of people out there that want to read this stuff. What's what's going on here? Tell us. I, I think honestly, I hear from readers all the time about electronic, you know, ebooks being very popular, and they can read them on their Kindle or their Nook or, or whatnot, and they don't have to let people see what they're reading. And I think a lot of it has to do with people being interested in sex and having fantasies about sex and experiencing all sorts of sexual things, but feeling like they're the only ones and that it's somehow wrong. And if you've been raised in any sort of conservative climate, and I was raised in the South, so I understand this, there is that sense that you can do this and you can do that, but you don't talk about it and you certainly don't read about it and you certainly don't admit that you do it or you read about it. So I I think that has a lot to do with it and kind of breaking the stigma. Now, of course, that's not true everywhere, and I I certainly know people that are are discussing erotica in their book clubs and whatnot of all age groups, but I think the connotation and the knee-jerk reaction is that erotica is porn. Porn has a negative um, association with it in most uh, circles, in this country, and women have always had their sexuality sort of pushed in the back uh, or, or closeted unless it was directly related to how men perceived them. So when women kind of took, took control of that idea, and this, goes, this is not recent, this, is, this has been ongoing for decades, when women took control of their own sexuality and discovered that, yes, they could in fact read and enjoy explicitly sexual material, I think that is when we started to see the tables turn, and, that, and these books are available. Somebody is buying these books or they wouldn't be written. The publishing industry does not work as an altruistic corporation where they're just putting out things that nobody's reading. They, they're there to make money, and the money is being made because someone is reading the books. So whether you know your mother, your grandmother, your sister, or whoever admits it, somebody is reading them, and it's tapping into this idea of, Everybody has a sex life of some sort, whether it's with someone else or in their own fantasy life. So we are here to provide those fantasies, just like the genre fiction writers write horror to provide that kind of thrill-seeking, or science fiction to provide that kind of fantasy world. We are doing the exact same thing that all the other genre fiction writers are doing, but it has still a stigma and a taboo attached to it. But hopefully we're breaking down the walls. Where did you grow up, Christina? I grew up in South Florida. Whereabouts? Uh, the Fort Lauderdale area. In the Fort Lauderdale area. Okay, everybody knows where that is. It's about an hour and a half, two hours north of Miami. Right. Uh, on the uh, on the far, uh, right on the eastern uh, seaboard on the Atlantic Ocean. How were you taught not to talk about sex? How was that, how was that communicated to you as you were a little girl and then a high school girl growing up? Do, do you have a sense uh, of... Well, my mother was uh, very much a... Um, conservative, uh, middle American. She was from Missouri. I was originally born in Missouri. I just grew up in Florida. Uh, it was simple. You don't have sex. You don't think about sex. You don't talk about sex. And that was, that was pretty much the message. But, but how was it actually commuted? Did your mother sit down with you one day and say, you don't have sex, you don't talk about sex, you don't do anything about sex? 
No, she didn't. I, not quite. I mean, how? how do no, you a, I'm sure it wasn't that direct. Um, but I was a curious kid, and I had a lot of questions about a lot of things, and and everything from understanding the differences between boys and girls to finding a Playboy magazine and being absolutely fascinated by the pictures. It was it was easily and quickly instilled that that was not acceptable behavior. So. Do you, of course, when you're told not to do something, you tend to actually go in, well, at least I do, go in the opposite direction and do exactly what I've been told not to do, and I still do. So I I did keep reading, and I did keep wondering and questioning and being curious, and often I would read books I was not supposed to read with, this, you know, with the dictionary beside me going, what does that word mean? So um, if I'd had the internet then, I probably would have understood a lot more about sex at a much earlier age. But thankfully, I was a reader, and there were a lot of books being written Granted, they might have been a little unrealistic in their portrayals, but there were a lot of books being written in the era um, in the late 70s that were those kind of what they call bodice rippers, which, you know, had those very tawdry kind of stories to them, which at the time for a young girl was very exciting. So um, I was reading things and exploring it that way when I was told, don't do it. And when when your readers read your books, the books that you edit, mm-hmm. uh, these 10 books... Um, is part of the goal to excite them, to get them turned on, to get them to be able to enjoy these things? Or what? what is the goal here other than, of course, selling books is a big goal, but what, what else is the goal because you're picking this particular genre? What would you like to have happen when your readers read your books? In addition to them paying, oh, in addition to them paying for the book, of course. <laughs> well, yes, of course. Uh, it, well, I, I'm sure you know other writers, and you also know that we're not motivated by money, or we'd be attorneys. We write stories because we're storytellers, and we write stories that we want to read. At least that's my take on it. Um, I. To turn on a reader, okay, that's wonderful, that's fine, but that, that's, not only, that's not the only goal in writing erotica. It's, it's about the story. It's about making readers feel engaged with the characters, whether they identify with them and, and see themselves within the character. That's one aspect of it. Or whether their mind is open to something that they never thought about before. And I, I have received letters from... Uh, readers who said things like, I didn't think I was going to like this, or I was a little uncomfortable reading this, but, you know, by the end of it, I, you know, made me think about it, and I was interested, and I want to read more. So if that's the ultimate goal, I think, is, is to entertain and maybe ex- explore things that people haven't read before. If you're writing science fiction and you're creating a whole other world, you want your readers to, to be engaged in that story and engaged in that world. And the same thing is true of erotica. You want readers to be, feel like they belong in the story, like they can identify with what they're reading and on some level, whether it's what's actually going on sexually or whether it's the relationship aspect of it, if there's um, a complex relationship. If I'm writing about um, a woman that's just had a baby having sex, which is uh, you know something I've experienced. I've had two children recently. So you want readers to identify with with what they're reading is there a is there a political educational as, uh, motivation behind it because i noticed for example that your books have to do with romance lustfully ever after has a subtitle fairy tale erotic romance and your mm-hmm. another another one of your books is called best erotic romance where where there are other people uh, with your same publisher 
who, this Rachel Kramer, for example, actually it's Rachel Kramer Bustle, writes Going Down, Oral Sex Stories, and, and then she writes Hotel Encounters, uh, Sweet Encounters, Hotel Sex Stories. Well, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's another, I mean, it's another genre, isn't it? She's talking about specifically about areas of, of particular kinds of sex, oral sex and hotel sex. You're talking about right. romantic sex. So there's, it's, it, you, you get my point here. And, and, sure, uh, absolutely. Uh, basically, erotic romance is based around the relationship. The, the relationship is fueled by the sexual component. So you can't have an erotic romance without sex, and you, it can't be a romance without some sort of relationship. I have written, and, and my first anthology, Fairy Tale Lust, was probably split equally between erotica and erotic romance. Erotica is, is, there doesn't have to be a relationship. You can have two people meet and have some sort of an encounter or, or just be a slice of life vignette of strangers or people who hardly have any relationship at all, and the sexual aspect of it is still there. So if you see erotic romance, you know that there are people that are going to end up together. And when I say people, it could be a man and a woman in a, you know, that kind of a relationship. It could be two women. It could be two men. It could be two men and a woman. It could be two women and a man. So there is some component of emotional attachment between the characters when you have an erotic romance, which doesn't necessarily have to be there when it's strictly erotica. Point well taken. So there, there is, there's, in your books, relationship is one of the key aspects, if not the key aspect, and sex right. and the sexual activity is part of the relationship. Whereas, right. which is not to say that the sex isn't just as hot, just as steamy, just as oral, or anything else that you want is. It would be an erotic. A lot of people make the mistake of thinking erotic romance is is softer. It, it's not explicit. It's you know, it's not what they want, uh, it, and it's not true. It's basically saying if you've had, ever had a relationship, if there's an emotional component. Anybody that's ever had a relationship, there's an emotional component to it. And that's what erotic romance is. It's tapping into not just the physical, but the emotional. Erotica might also t- touch on the emotional as- aspect of it, but it's more, I think, for me, erotica that isn't romantic has a very personal, it's very uh, intuitive. It's, it's not looking outward to the other person. It's um, very much about focused on the internal aspect of the character, whereas I feel like erotic romance kind of looks outward to the other person or people that are involved in whatever the scenario is. So if I get it correctly then from you, erotic romance focuses a great deal, if not primarily, on the relationship between the two people, whereas what you're you're calling erotica is going to be focusing much more on perhaps the activity that the person's having, such as anal, oral, various hotel, and various other kinds of sexual activity. Is that correct? In, in a way. Um, but you could also have somebody who's exploring their sexuality in an erotic story that has nothing to do with romance. It, c- it could be a, sol- a story that's all about themselves, um, somebody that's just had surgery or someone that's just had a death or something exploring their sexuality, and there's still emotion, obviously, attached to that. Sex isn't existing in a vacuum here, but there isn't a relationship. There isn't a romance going on with other people in, involved. So well, I, I, meant- I don't want to make the mistake of saying erotica is strictly just sex, and there's no emotion whatsoever. It's just that the, the focus of the story isn't on a relationship, well, whereas erotic well, well, romance is focused on some On the relationship, relationship. yes. Although, right. Yeah, though I see, I mean, in some of the books here in, in, in your catalog, 
there doesn't seem to be much in the way of relationship that one would expect when you read a, a, a title that says the ultimate guide to, to fellatio, how to go down on a man and give him mind-blowing pleasure. Or the well, that's a nonfiction book. That's not fiction. That's, that's a how-to, you know, skill book. That's not a fictional collection of stories or a novel. Oh, I see. So things like The Ultimate Guide to Anal Sex for Women is, is not going to be a, 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 a fictionalized stories. No, with, no, no. There, there may be some fiction in there to demonstrate. I, I haven't read the book, so I'm not sure of that particular title. But no, the... Uh, Cleus Press and Reeve Editions, they publish uh, a lot of uh, nonfiction titles that are about sexuality. So it, it would be like you were looking, you know, on how to repair your relationship or, or whatnot. How to fix your situation. car. I mean, it's more of a how-to, uh, it's a guide yeah. rather than a story. Maybe, right. Yeah, okay. Well, maybe we'll get some of those authors on sometime and talk to them about uh, how to fix your uh, your car. Uh who, who do you aim your books at, uh, Christina? Uh, males, females, people of certain age groups? That's a kind of a marketing question, and I, I feel like we're all kind of encouraged as, as writers or as editors to, to channel our energies toward um, marketing to a certain, whatever our demographic is. Uh, people will tell you that erotic romance is read by women ages, you know, 25 to 50 who are primarily um, heterosexual or primarily in a committed relationship. I mean, that's the demographic that I think the marketing people will tell you. I get fan mail periodically, which is lovely, and it does skew that way. It does tend to be women of a certain age in relationships um, who probably don't encounter anything, you know, they're not, they're not in this in an industry where they would see a lot of information about sex or whatnot. So that that is often the demographic. But I also get, you know, mail from college girls who aren't married, who aren't in a relationship, who read erotic romance or erotic fiction. I get, you know, email from. I've gotten mail from straight men who said my wife left this book laying around, and I picked it up and read it, and I just wanted to, you know, I didn't think I'd like it, but it blew me away. So I, I think. Fiction and erotica especially kind of transcends any sort of um, specific demographic. I think you can market it by putting a cover on it that's going to appeal to a certain audience. But I think when you strip away the cover and give people a story, a good story is going to be welcomed by anybody that likes that particular story. And hopefully they're over 18 and reading erotica. <laughs> but, um, I think a good story kind of transcends any sort of specific demographic. You know, people... So much when they watch uh, um, sexual movies or movies with sexual activity in them, uh, are, people are so much known for wanting to view the sexual act itself that, as we all well know, uh, the movies typically have very little storyline, very little anything else, and you get right to the, quote, action scene. Now, mm -hmm. you, you have a whole different challenge going on where you're actually, if I understand you, writing a story or editing stories that where the story themselves have interest for the reader and then the sexual activity is part of the story. Isn't that correct? For the most part, yeah. I, I, you can write a beautifully written, purely sexual story, and I, I feel like I have written stories like that. But I'm also, I make my job way harder than I have to sometimes, and I, I'm fascinated by how people 
interact and how people think and how a particular person will act in a particular setting. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's more than about sex and it's more than a sexual act or any you know one sexual experience. It's you have characters, hopefully well developed characters, who have a whole entire history, and the reader may not read that history, but the writer has to have in their head. This is a 27-year-old single female who's only, you know, had two sexual partners, and here's the situation. She's meeting a guy for the first time. How is she going to react? Well, she's not going to react as the same way as a 50-year-old woman who's had three kids and been married 50 years, right? So, excuse me, you know, 20 years. So you have to have some sort of idea who your characters are when you're writing sex. Everybody approaches sex differently in their real life, and every character in every erotica story is approaching sex from a different perspective as well. And readers will call you out on it if they read something that's unrealistic or something that doesn't ring true. And they will say, you know, this didn't, re- this didn't feel right to me. Now, it's the, it's the author's prerogative to say, well, it works. You know, this is how I feel about it. But sex is one of those things where everybody's got their own ideas about it, and you bring to it what you grew up with, what you've read since adulthood, what you've experienced. You bring a lot of baggage to this particular genre that you might not bring to something like a horror novel or whatever if you've you know, never had any experience with violence, you're not going to have a framework with which to work. So if you're an adult who's had any sort of a sex life, you're going to have experienced a few things, hopefully, and have an attitude or, or kind of an opinion going into anything you read. So you write for yourself, first of first and foremost, because if you're trying to write for a specific person, it's usually not going to work, but you're you're also trying to kind of grasp that interconnectedness we all have with, with regard to sexuality. It, uh, you know, I love you saying that, that interconnectedness that we all have with sexuality, and it is so true. Every human being has that, and yet we, uh, I come back again and again um, to the to the vast prohibitions the vast i think it's 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 the area that generates the greatest hypocrisy of any we have a lot of hypocrisy in our country but the hypocrisy around uh, around our sexuality is 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 stifling because as mm-hmm. you said i mean everybody knows is in, t- in touch with their sexuality in some way or another and yet we have so much make believe and so much not talking and so much not saying and then we have these words as i said before that we can't even use on the radio for fear of losing the entire station folks we're, our guest today is christina wright she's the award-winning author of a series of books uh about people and about people's sexuality the two books today that we're talking about uh, are called Best Erotic Romance, and the other one is Lustfully Ever After, Fairy Tale Erotic Romance. Call in, ask Christina a question, or maybe you'd like to take a leap and talk about your own sexuality in some way. The telephone number here is 707-937-5103. 707-937-5103. Zero three. Pick up the phone, call in, and join this discussion about, is it the topic of all topics? Well, what are the topic of all topics? Sex, religion, politics no more. We're all talking about politics. Maybe it's sex and religion, and what's the third one? And power. Michael says power is the other big topic. What about power? Does power play a role in your romance novels? Is that a topic of interest to you, Christina? Uh, Empowering 
people in general, I think, is the topic that I'm interested in, empowering people to to embrace their own sexuality and not be embarrassed or afraid or feel intimidated by anyone else and mm-hmm. being able to say, even if it's only to themselves, I like this, this is good, this interests me, this excites me. That kind of power I'm very interested in. Terrific. Hey, we have a caller. Let's take it. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi. Um, Hi. Uh, yeah, one thing that is concerning me is, um, and of course it is a delicate subject, and so I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to express myself. You're lucky that only one thing is concerning you. I have so much concerning me sometimes. I don't oh, know. Oh, I have to... plenty more concerning <laughs> me, but this is the topic that came into my living room today. I know. I'm kidding. Um, so, um, okay. So, what concerns me about this is um, that, well, it, the author. It sounds like I'm not sure she could correct, but it sounds like she's in a secure, committed relationship. And where her children uh, and their father and her are, you know, have the supports and protections or whatever that they have. Um, and so I can appreciate uh, that her perspective, she, it's like she is blessed with a context that allows her a greater freedom. So what my concern is, is the lack of awareness or appreciation for those who aren't in such a secure context. And so I, and I'm thinking about uh, risk management. I'm thinking about the idea that um, before one uh, really ought to be uh, messing around too much with guests and, you know, and, and it's like, you know, how liberal can we get or whatever, how free can we get is we have to be able to have and honor um, an effective no. And uh, and I would prefer that uh, the, you know, discussion or sharing, and especially uh, this idea, the very idea of moving uh, the erotica into the uh, romance. And I, again, I appreciate uh, her reasons for wanting to do so, but moving it into, um, you know, other kinds of relationships or relationship and romance. Because one thing is um, that I find it's often challenging to have relationships um, between men and women, and in this area, even between women and women, that are not sexual, where there's not an implied uh invitation for sexuality. I just feel like there is so much uh, creativity and challenge and whatnot that, um, and work uh, that uh, I would long to do and that people long to, you know, fulfillment um, that is uh, not sexual, that to be able to develop uh, relationships where the sexuality does not have to be Interesting. Let's let's find out what our author has to say. And thank you so much for that that uh, that commentary. What do you say about that, uh, Christina? Uh, well, I'm I'm not quite sure what she's referring to in terms of security. Um, I I do have a committed relationship, and but again, I'm in the South, so I'm not going around um, 
necessarily announcing my sexuality or my sexual interest or whatnot. I, I'm not embarrassed about it, and I, I don't hide it. But I, I do appreciate what you're saying about relationships, not necessarily having a sexual focus or feature. But my goal is not to say, hey, go out and, and meet somebody and have sex. My, my goal with my fiction writing is to give people who are interested in sex and who are curious, maybe curious about what erotica is, a, a place where they can go and read a story or read a book and enjoy it in their own, you know, for themselves. And as I mentioned right before we took uh, her call, this isn't about, you know, saying, hey, I'm reading this book and, and you know, waving it around. It's even if people only, you know, admit to themselves, and I, I think that's actually how I phrase it, even if you only admit to yourself, hey, I like this, this interested in me, this opened my mind about some things, that's the ultimate goal. And, and I hope, I hope everyone feels safe and secure wherever they are, uh, at least in this country, feeling like they can read a book, whether it's online or at the bookstore or, or even at the library, if you have a good open-minded librarian, or on an e-reader or whatnot, and reading whatever they want and not feeling uh, threatened or, or insecure about it. It is different when you're handing it over to a partner or handing it over even to a friend and admitting that you enjoyed this. And, and I, I do understand where that comes from. I, I haven't always been, you know, having radio interviews or whatnot, and I did toy with the idea of writing under a pseudonym, and I do face questions all the time about, well, now that you have children, what are you going to do? Well, the Internet's, you know, pretty much open to anybody, so I will deal with it when it happens, but well, you know, so the, I do the, appreciate the, what she's saying. The, Christina, you know, the question itself, you know, now that you have children, what are you going to do? That question has embedded in it that you're doing something that's wrong. wrong if right. you take the attitude that you're doing something that's right and it sounds like you are, then you really don't have anything to hide from your children. Isn't that well, correct? And I, I'm so glad you make that point because I've always um, written under my real name and, I, and I've had that question numerous times by other writers and I, I certainly do not judge anybody for their reasons for using a pseudonym, but my thought process was this and I used... Um, Susie Bright is a wonderful example because she's a uh, sexuality writer, uh, expert, activist. Um, the Internet is one of those wonderful things, wonderful tools. But my, my thought process is if I use a name that's fictional, if I, if I use a pen name and someone starts to become interested in me and wondering why I'm writing under a pen name, they'll find out who I am. And then it'll... Then it's not so much about what my real name is. It's about why weren't you using your real name? You must be embarrassed by what you do. That's my personal take on it. Here I am. My name is Christina Wright. I live, you know, under the name Christina Wright. I'm married under the name Christina Wright. And I also write under the name Christina Wright. If someone wants to know more about me, all they got to do is Google my name. I am not, I'm not a big secret that there's no mystique here. Um, I have a very full and well-rounded life, and... I think sexuality is one of those things that, you know, I, I'm trying to walk the walk. Uh, I'm going to write about it, and I'm going to write about it as myself. And I don't put my own personal life out there for anybody because I'm a fiction writer. So you can read whatever I write, and you can interpret it any way you want and feel like maybe you know more about me than you really do. But at the end of the day, I am a fiction writer, and I'm making up stories in my head, and I'm putting them down on paper, and I'm turning around and giving them to readers. So... Uh, you're right. When it comes to the questions about what are you going to you know, do now that you have kids, there is an implicit 
suggestion that I am somehow doing something wrong. And I always say, well, you know, at some point they're going to find out that their dad was in the Navy. They're going to find out that I was a writer. Kids don't care. I mean, honestly, if there's anything I remember from my childhood, it's really not being terribly interested in what my parents did for a living or what their hobbies were, what their interests were. Kids are very self-focused, and they'll, you know, they'll deal with it the way I deal with it. It's, but aren't you, job. Christina, aren't you also, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't you part of a movement that, uh, a, a, a strong uh, a movement of writers who, uh, or activists who want to open up the whole area of sexuality, of human sexuality, and make it a more acceptable topic for the, for the public? Is that not accurate? I, I don't know that I'm an active activist. If I'm part of that, that's, that's wonderful. This is honestly just who I am. Uh-huh. I, I've always had the question of why is something wrong? It's not illegal to have sex. It's not illegal to write what I write. Certain kinds why of no, so I, I think no, I, attached to it. Certain kinds of sex, that. certain kinds of sex, I think still uh, are acts are illegal in the United States in, in certain uh, in certain states. Well, we're going to take a call well, here, true. Christina. A quick call. We're going to take a quick call here. Now, put him on, Michael, please. Uh, okay, push that little button. Thank you. Uh, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air for a quick question because we're running out of time. Okay, thanks. What's You're welcome. The, what's the difference between erotica and pornography? What's That's the diff- Great question. Okay. What's the difference? Between, thank you so much. Sure. What's the difference? Christina, for you, what's the difference between erotica and pornography? Uh, I feel like pornography has so much baggage attached to it. Um, the real quick, simple answer would be, uh, I think pornography is generally more visual. Erotica is primarily written. Um, so we might say I, pornography I pornography is for men and, and, and uh, erotica is for women because women tend no, to read more? No, I don't buy and, that. I no? never bought that. The whole okay. idea that men are visual and women aren't, no, I don't, no. I don't buy into it. I, you know. Does your husband Porn has a negative connotation? Nobody's like, "Hey, I love pornography." It's it's said in a negative way. It's been intended to be a derogatory word. Um, That's true. I, I don't buy into it. Everybody listening, I want. We won't have time today, but sometime in the future, I want all of those of you who love pornography to call in and say you love pornography. <laughs> Let's have all six of you. Ha ha ha! What a joke! <laughs> pornography is the biggest selling. I think it's the biggest selling product on the entire globe. We all know that, yeah. and we make believe it isn't true, but it, but the, the reality is there. Does your Does your husband read your books? Yeah, absolutely. Does he like them? He does. Does, He's do my they, biggest fan, my biggest supporter. Fantastic. I, I, do they turn him on? Does he say it? To, they're arousing. Uh, you'd have to ask him. I'm, you know, it's his, Jay. I, where I are you? Where are you, Jay? C- call in from the Navy and let us know. <laughs> <laughs> do these uh, really? Do these? Uh, <laughs> do these books make your submarine periscope go up? Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> oh, be careful here, Richard. What are you doing? Um, you, you have to keep coming up with new stories mm-hmm. is that do they just fly right out of you or do you is that a big job what's it like i mean people are thinking how does she do this we've got two minutes to find out how do you keep cranking this stuff out uh well I, I you know i and i pay this woman and she comes to my house once a week and she gives me um <laughs> I, I, have, I have an active imagination i've always had an active imagination and i'm an insomniac i spend a lot oh. of hours awake at night thinking about stories and story premises and i work out of starbucks i, I hang out in starbucks working and writing stories and i i'm the person that eavesdrops on other people's conversations because they sit too close and they talk too loud 
and anything can be a story. A sentence, uh, a look, a outfit, anything can be a story. Terrific. So it really is just imagination. Oh, I love your candor. Sitting, imagine, next time you go to Starbucks, folks, and you're talking about your sex life, just remember there's a Christina Wright who's <laughs> listening, and you're going you're gonna to find yourself in one of the books. It's been delightful talking to you. You sound like, you know, just a regular person, just like the rest of us, who's got an active imagination and just had a regular grow up. And, and here you are and you're writing the books and it's a, it's a wonderful thing. I thank you so much for coming on the program. The books. Thank written, you so much for having me. You're very welcome. The books written by Christina Wright. These are just two of her books. You can find her on Google, Christina Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T, the latest Best Erotic Romance and lustfully ever after. Folks, I'm going to be doing a series on human sexuality. We've got a lot of hot topics coming up, including stuff like The Ultimate Guide to Kink, BDSM Roleplay, and The Erotic Edge. How about stuff like The Smart Girl's Guide to the G-Spot? All kinds of stuff on sex, going down, oral sex stories coming up for you. We're going to find out what these people are saying, what they're writing about, and why they're doing it. And so, thank you. Thank you for joining me today. It's been an interesting show. Thanks for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend, Mike Delora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for. It really is. And it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm.